we see God's worship and we see the way that God asks for it. And then we see other people set things up and say, no, this is worshiping of God. It just looks a little different. We're just doing it our own way. That does not pass. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got Eric. Hey, my name is Eric. That is Eric. We have Karen. <laughs> hey, my name's Karen. Who knew that we had a Karen on the show? I hey. did. <laughs> and we've got Tracy. And I would be Tracy. That is Tracy. <laughs> I th I'm pretty sure that's Tracy. He says so. The gang is all here. And boy, we're, uh, I don't know, life is running fast and furious for us these days. My, I guess you could say my son officially is officially done with his high school career now. Because last night he had his last performance of his high school play, and he was playing the role of Mr. Darcy in of uh, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, he got to be the romantic hero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the only time I've ever seen that that story. It's always kind of unfamiliar with it, and I'm like, yeah, they picked the right kid to play this because he's kind of a stuffed shirt. <laughs> if my kid, if my kid's listening, <laughs> I love you, Xander. <laughs> and, uh, yeah yeah but he did he got to play the lead and that was cool because he's been he usually gets placed in the role of like the father figures he was uh they did high school musical his first year in high school and he's such a big kid i mean he, there he is as a sophomore he gets he got cast in the role of the coach uh uh, uh, Coach Bolton, so because he's just so big and had such a booming voice and and could yell louder than anybody else. Um, he got to play the role of the uncle in Footloose, and then he this this uh, this year he got to be Mr. Darcy. And usually they would do two plays a year, a, a musical and a play, but this year because of all the COVID stuff, they only did one. They've been working on this play all year long, and uh, so it finally culminated this these last couple of days and and um he got to do it and he had a great time at it so it was it was fun to see him kind of go out of uh the high school realm on a high note like that that was pretty cool yeah that's awesome yeah so uh let's get into our discussion for this week we have been talking about how the nation of israel has been evolving over time we went through we've gone through Mm, gosh, several kings already. But, you know, we started with Saul, and then we got into David and uh, uh, Solomon. And then after Solomon, things just started to really go straight. Actually, during Solomon, I guess, really, things started to kind of go strange and go south. But last week, we literally saw the kingdom of Israel get split into two distinct nations, and I guess calling them distinct is kind of strange because they're still, everybody's still sort of expected to go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. And so that's creating, I don't know, that causes kind of a weird, a weird dynamic between what got split off and known now as the nation of Israel, which is most of, most of all those 12 tribes, except for Judah and Benjamin. And then we have left over, obviously, what's known as the nation of Judah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of it's odd that you have this now this small little contingency of of Judah and Benjamin that's just sort of sitting there. Uh, I don't know, carrying carrying the 
carrying the torch for for what was supposed to happen with with the nations and and the promise to to Abraham and then even then especially to David because David was told that his his uh, house would sit on the throne forever at least for as long as they followed God and I mean we're we're only like what one or two generations after David and things have really just started to fall apart. And so last week we were talking about uh, specifically, oh, we talked about Jeroboam and his son Abijah, and then we talked about Rehoboam. So it's just, we've gone through this, we took quite a while going through all those other kings that I've already mentioned, and this week we kind of have a quick succession of kings now between between Israel and Judah. And First Kings chapter fifteen, and we're going to be bouncing back and forth between First uh, Kings and Second Chronicles quite a bit, because First Kings will give us one perspective, and then Second Chronicles, oftentimes this week gave us an entirely different uh, set of information to look at. So starting in First Kings fifteen, we're introduced to Abijam, who becomes king over Judah, and we're told that he reigned for thirteen years. And his mother's name was Mayaka. And I find it, I don't know, did you guys find it interesting that we start learning the names of the mothers of the kings? And it, it's interesting. That's interesting to me because being such a patriarchal society, w- women tended to get overlooked a lot. You know, I wonder, though, when I was reading it, and I have my notes here, that I wonder if they had to do that because there were so many wives. And that could be. We start, to, we start to see some people with the same names. Yeah. So it's like maybe that's how they distinguished it. Yeah. Well, if I remember last week, we even we did. We had two sons of two different kings that both were named, I want to say, yeah, Abijah. There was two different Abijahs. Was there were two different Abijahs last week and one was king of uh, son of Jeroboam and another one was the son of was he the son of Rehoboam? I don't remember exactly, but but yeah, we start getting uh people with same names and and that's a good point tracy maybe it is because he had so many kings with so many wives that maybe it made a difference to them to say okay this is this is this particular woman's son but uh we don't get a lot of information about abijah other than he was just as bad as his father rehoboam and if we look back at rehoboam he um he started putting back all of the high places and building building sacred pillars and wooden images and and we're told that during his reign that it said perverted persons did all the abomination of the nations. So Rehoboam was not a good king. His son is just as bad, and he lasts a whopping three years. And then Rehoboam lost lost the his his treasure, his stuff, his his um what would the golden shields replace him with the uh, bronze bronze shields mm-hmm. um so he lost a lot of the national treasures you might say yeah yeah and it's it's just fascinating to me how quickly everything goes bad in this in this nation that god set up and it sort of shows how you know we we've talked a lot here about how how god has a lot of conditional promises and this is certainly one of those is like as long as you are following what he has has told you to do, at least in the context of Israel, it was uh, you, you 
to to David, your sons, your your line is going to uh, be successful and have have a place on the throne forever. And they just so quickly start going bad. So that's about all we hear about Abijam in First Kings fifteen. So now I'm going to jump to Second Chronicles chapter thirteen, and we have a battle. Uh, with Jeroboam of Israel. See, this is this is where things are going to start getting kind of confusing because we've been so used to talking about the nation of Israel, and now the nation of the nation of Israel is separate from what once was. And and so we, when we have this Judah and Israel, trying to keep that straight in our heads could get a little could get a little odd. Now I guess you know what I guess I was wrong when I said that was all we hear about Abijam because this is where we go to some of that that completely different perspective that we're given. Because we're told that Abijam is just as bad as Rehoboam. But now we're told about a battle that he had with Jeroboam of Israel. And Abijam, being king of Judah, he accuses Jeroboam of being a false king because he isn't from the house of David and because of his idolatry. Now, this is this is such a different perspective we're given of Abijam to 1 Kings 15, which was very short. Now we're told it's almost as if Abijam wasn't always the bad king that he that he's spelled out to be in First Kings, because he's accusing Jeroboam of being the bad king because of Jeroboam's idolatry, and he makes this claim that God is with Judah because they serve God through Levite priests and their daily sacrifices. What'd you guys think of that? Did you think, does that sound to you like he is making a claim based on, well, we're the true kingdom because we do all the right stuff? Well, I wondered about that. And it's not all the blanks are not filled in. But at least in Jerusalem, they are, in fact, still doing sacrifices and so on at the temple, even if they are at the same time, you know, practicing some of these false religious practices. They do have the majority of the priests and Levites and a lot of the um, worshipers of God who basically when when Jeroboam started his, you know, I'll make you new gods thing, they call them the same as the old gods. There are a lot of worshipers that just left. And, you know, it's interesting that I've read in a... um, well, I've been working on some business development things. And they say, here's one of the problems with having a toxic person in your company is it's people think that's like, well, if you have toxic people in your company, it's the good people won't join your company. He said, no, the real risk is that the good people will leave. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to Jeroboam here. He sets up these uh, false, um, these golden calves. And I think it was last week's reading maybe the week before, we discover that there are a lot of worshippers, a lot of just citizens of, um, of, the, of the tribes who left the northern kingdom. They left Israel and went to Judah. So at least they kind of have that going on in the background, although both of them have shown to be fairly fickle with their um, steadfastness towards God. At least a lot of the kings do. And so I don't know if really truly uh, Judah at this point is just worshiping the Lord, capital L O R D, mm-hmm. um, because that's what it says in Second Chronicles thirteen uh, twelve, is the king of Judah is saying God is with us as our head. Skip ahead. Do not fight against the Lord, 
the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. I don't know how much of that is like because they're actually worshiping God or partway worshiping God, or if they just feel like, yeah, we have this heritage and therefore we have this right. You know, it's, maybe it's people just as I've said, you know, wearing the T-shirt or putting the bumper sticker on, but not really doing all the things. I don't know how much that's going on. Yeah, it just seemed it seemed interesting to me going from First Kings to Second Chronicles and getting this completely. It, it seems on the surface to be a completely different picture of of of, of Abijam, and I don't know. When, I guess when you read between the lines, it it's it feels to me more like an entitlement rather than a true a true following. At least as far as Abijam himself is concerned, the people may may have been following God very well because like you said some people left uh Israel I guess that's considered the northern kingdom right yeah I think so they mm-hmm. they left the northern kingdom to come to to Judah because the temple is there because they were at least making some effort to um to follow God in the way that was prescribed right I mean that makes it pretty he makes it a pretty challenging speech to Jeroboam in in Second Chronicles 13, 8 through uh, 12. Um, and they and with Jeroboam apparently so Abijah makes this accusation like, hey, look, you've made golden calves, you've made priests out of just everybody. Um, you're worshiping what is not real gods, all this stuff. And Jeroboam's kind of like, ha, ah, well, I gotcha, because Jeroboam apparently is a better uh, military leader than Abijah is. So Jeroboam has put an ambush up behind uh, Abijah. But then Abijah cries out to God and says they relied on the Lord. And um, Abijah's people won. And they wiped out, a, says, 500,000 mm-hmm. men of uh, Israel, northern kingdom, Jeroboam's folks. So I don't know if you guys were thinking of this, but I was thinking when I was reading this, where did all those bodies go? <laughs> yeah, That's I a lot I... of people at one time. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about that. You know, we tend to not think about that when we think of of wars back then. You know, I think that's why we see all these references of like birds of the air and mm-hmm. you know animals of the field. I would imagine they went out and looted. Because that's talked about a lot. He would loot the uh, the dead and um, then probably just let nature take its course in an area and just like, yeah, well, stay away from that area for a while. And Yeah, I suppose so. Well, well then, they made a reference to, was it, the, was it the Cushites that lost a huge force later, like in Second Chronicles? And it said, and it said there when it was talking about him, it said there were too many of them to haul, too many dead to haul away the bodies. I know, yeah, I don't know. I'm guessing, like Tracy said, there'd be a place to stay away from, or even burning them. That would I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that we get much. Uh, I don't know that we've ever really get much reference to burning of bodies back then. At least not with the with the Jewish people. Um, but I don't know. I mean, that's an efficient way to to take care of of it. But um, I don't know. 
Although, speaking of that, and just kind of jumping ahead, we'll, we'll get to it, but they did mention a great burning. So I don't, with one of the kings, which I'd never seen before, but we'll get to it. Mm. Yeah, you have to point it out because I'm not, I'm not remembering that right now. Yeah, so um, ultimately, Abijam and, and Judah ends up winning that battle. And in verse 18, Chronic, 2 Chronicles 13, verse 18, it says it's because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. So whether, I don't know how much sincerity was in there on Abijam's part, but it's certainly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the benefit of the doubt on this and say that at least the people of Judah uh, were, were sincere. And maybe Abijam was too, but like we've seen with so many other kings, they get power, they get comfortable, and they just start to rely on themselves and, and go in different directions than, than what they were supposed to. I think that's an important point. With all these kings, it is, it's easy for us to want to just say, if we still do it, that person's all bad or they're all good. And mm-hmm. very few people are that. And so we see kings who start out good and then they just they go off the rails. And a few, it's fewer, but there are a few who start out pretty bad or in cases of some later, really, really, really bad. And at the end, make a turn. It isn't as if they have to stay on the course that they're in. And most of the time, I can't avoid the idea that power basically, I don't know that it's power or it's that it enables selfishness to a degree that we normally don't get to exercise it. It turns turns things bad. Well, and it sounds like God. It, the, the reason they won the battle is because God stepped in. Specifically, yep. said that God struck Jeroboam. Yep. And that Jeroboam never recovered, says the Lord struck him and he died. So all of that idolatry and moving away from God and just go, going after different things. It's, it's one of those, it's another one of those stories in the whole history of Israel that just, just baffles me. But I guess it's probably because I look at it in hindsight and, and as I read through, it takes me a relatively short time to read through. And we're talking generations, right? several generations since they were actually pulled out of Egypt, even though all those times God's saying, I pulled you out of Egypt. And, and um, I can imagine people going, yeah, you pulled my great, great, great grandfather out, you know, <laughs> and my perspective is different. Okay. So here's the thing before we move on is that mm-hmm. we have in what well, it's, it's both in first Kings 15 and in second Chronicles 13 is we have, uh, depending on the book, Abijah or Abijam, Versus Jeroboam. And we looked at some of the speech that Abijah has, like, we're the real worshipers of God and all this other stuff. You realize, though, that Jeroboam was probably saying the same thing to his people. Because he'd said, he had said, here are your gods. Here Mm -hmm. is your God that delivered you from Egypt. They're saying the same thing. Right. And so it's like, well, no, God's on our side. No, God's on our side. And so the words, just my point is, is that just saying the words, just wearing the shirt, having the bumper sticker, doesn't make it true. Yeah, well, and in this case, it seems like neither it wasn't true for either one, but maybe, maybe, maybe Abijam was just that little bit more true. I don't know. Well, he called know. to the God of, of uh, he, it says he called to the Lord, which is the, the personal um, mm-hmm. 
specific noun, which were they're all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And Jeroboam is definitely not doing that. Jeroboam knows yeah. that he's made these idols. He, right. he knows that he just made golden calves. And so, but he's called them, and he's doing all the same things. Remember, Jeroboam made priests. Jeroboam made holidays. Jeroboam, basically, he just copied all the things and said, now, this is legitimate. We're going to just make it so. It reminds me of watching little kids out on a field or what, making their own rules as they play a game. It's like, no, you have to count till 10 before you can run, before you can leave. The they just made it up on the spot, right? And so the rules are always changing. And Jeroboam essentially did that, but he copied. And we, this becomes a theme later in the Bible, is we see God's worship and we see the way that God asks for it. And then we see other people set things up and say, no, this is worshiping of God. It just looks a little different. We're just doing it our own way. That does not pass. We see that all the way through the very end of the book of Revelation. There's worship. It's not like there's worship of God on one hand and like we're not going to worship anything. There's nothing. That's all silliness. It's like there is a worship, but it's a false worship. And we, we see it happening all the way when they start worshiping gods that are not God. And then here we've made a very interesting shift. In fact, this shift is so seismic that throughout the next oh, probably months of reading, we're going to be referenced with this thing that the sin of Jeroboam or the way of Jeroboam or the sins of Jeroboam. And what that becomes is, okay, because before this, there was worship of God or worship of Moloch, right? Worship of God or worship of Baal, worship of God or worship of Ashtaroth. But what Jeroboam did is he slipped these other things in and called it worship of God. Right. And that's a big difference because before it was kind of black or white. You know, well, well I'm just going to go worship Moloch anyways. Well, okay, now everybody knows what you're doing because you're doing something what you say you're doing. It's obvious, right? But Jeroboam slips this thing and says, no, we're actually worshiping God. We're just kind of making it up as we go. And that is a that becomes a big deal. Well, bouncing back to 1 Kings 15 now. We meet a new king for Judah named Asa, and we're told we, we we get some some perspective of when people came up because they'll talk to about them in relation to what year of the other king they came in. And Asa became king of Judah in the twentieth year of Jeroboam of Israel. See, I told you this is going to get confusing, but seems like Jeroboam was able to stay in as king of. Israel quite a while, and some of these kings of Judah, they would just kind of come in and go. But Asa actually gets to stick around for quite a while. It says that right. he reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem. And in this case, his grandmother is named. And I thought that was interesting. Rather than his mom, I don't think we get his mother's name here. We get his grandmother's name, and her name is Mayaka. No, in, in 16, they said they removed her. Yep. Yeah. Because she had mm -hmm. made a, a ah. idol or obscene right. image. That's yep. right. That's right. Yeah, he did. He had to remove her as as queen mother because because she was being a bad influence. But we're we're told that Asa himself, and I have it in quotes here. He did right in the eyes of the Lord, and 
it, that gets spelled out pretty quickly. He he banished. We talked about earlier. We talked about the perverted persons that were in in the land. And here specifically, it spells out what that meant. And really, it sounds like this. These were people who were performing particular sexual acts in a religious context. That's just a strange concept to me in general. But I mean, we're talking. It sounds it sounds specifically homosexual acts and prostitution specifically in a religious context. And I, I don't know what that would look like. I don't know that I would want to know what that would look like. And Asa is having none of it. And he's, he's getting it out of, of uh, Judah. Yeah, that goes way back though. That's, I mean, because a lot of the gods that they were worshiping were fertility gods. Mm-hmm. You do because they wanted big families, they wanted the big um, herds and stuff like this. So this was a really big deal to them. And well, frankly, the devil took that and said, "Well, how can I make this, you know, appeal to somebody's selfishness, and at the same time degrade them and take it out of context of what God has?" And yes, it seems incredibly strange to us, but we see that going. It's it's all the way through the Bible. I mean, mm-hmm. from beginning to end. We see this, sometimes it's literal, and sometimes it's metaphorical. But again, we, we see this all the way through the book of Revelation, that this is a, this is a thing. Yeah. And Asa goes to clean house. Yeah. Well, and I guess, you know, thinking of it in those terms, these fertility idols, the, this Asherah pole that, that Mayaka had, had built and had put up, I think we may have talked about what those were here on the podcast, possibly. It's a symbol of fertility, I think rather phallic in nature. And it was definitely concerned. I mean, it's specifically spelled as being obscene. So I, it, it sounds to me like maybe in the context of of a a, a religious perspective from, from the God that we know that, that a... a religion based around sexual practices and that sort of thing is seems just as obscene to them as it would to us. And, uh, one, they wanted to get that out of there, but it says he didn't remove the high places. And I don't exactly know what that means other than places considered sacred for, for these other, uh, I'll call them pagan. I don't know. Is pagan the right word? I mean, pagan has kind of a specific connotation, but at least not not Judeo. Uh, they're they're not of a Judeo nature. But he didn't he didn't remove those places. But but he did get them out of Jerusalem. We're told that in Second Chronicles fourteen. But even though he didn't get that out, he still remained loyal to God. Now he was in constant war with Baasha of Israel, and Baasha. That's kind of a bold move, and he decides he's going to try to build a city of his own right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, It's called Ramah. And Asa decides, nope, don't want to have that. So he sends message to the king of Syria, along with a whole mess of gold and silver, and I'm not sure how much it was, but it talks about how he was taking it out of the treasuries of the house of God and out of the house of the king. And basically, he buys the loyalty of the king of Syria and kind of buys it right out from underneath Israel because it sounded like Syria had a had a treaty already with Israel. And Asa talks him into coming over to his side. So the Syrians 
come in and basically run Beasha and the Israelites out of the area, and they leave behind this little this city, Rama. And Asa has Rama just torn down, and then he uses those materials to build a couple of other cities called Giba and Mitzpah. It's interesting that um, the, the king of Israel here, and it says the reason that he builds this, this, build, this um, uh, Rama was to keep his own citizens in. It's a little kind of shades of North Korea here. It's like, it's so yeah. great here, you won't want to leave. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't we write a song about that? It was like hotel. What was that? Hotel. Yeah. Hotel North Korea. Yes, I think that was the one. So it's it's an interesting thing that we don't see that, at least not here, ever from Judah. It's like I believe that's a metaphor that truth is open to like you can leave if you want to. Mm-hmm. And falsehood is like, no, you're gonna do it my way or you're gonna do it my way. And we see the king of the the north doing this, and I I think it's not by accident that that's that's the guy who built the the fortress to keep his own people from leaving. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't speak well (laughs) for him. So when we look into 2 Chronicles 14, then bouncing back away from 1 Kings for a bit, we get a little different story for Asa again. It sounds like he had he did have some downtime as while he was king. And while he had that downtime, he built himself some cities and built himself up an army. He had, it said, 300,000 men from Judah and 280,000 men from Benjamin. So that's no small. It's not a small little army for what it, I mean, it consists of a relatively small area of, of land. But he got into a conflict with Ethiopia, and it didn't sound. I didn't. I didn't really get any indication of why this conflict began with Ethiopia, other than it sounded like maybe Ethiopia just wanted wanted what uh, what Asa had. They come in with a million men with three hundred chariots, and at this point, we're told that Asa actually seeks God's help, which plays into our story here a little bit later. So here he's looking for God's help. Before he was looking uh, basically to him to himself from what we saw and went to um, Syria, but here he actually looked for God. Had yeah. me wondering what happened at some point. But so yeah, he's. Uh, this sounds like maybe this is early on. Is this conflict with Ethiopia and he asked for God's help? And yeah, versus a million men and three hundred chariots versus what? Just over five hundred thousand, and says that God strike stroke. Hmm. God struck Ethiopia and the Ethiopians fleed. They ran away to the point that Asa was able to pursue them a bit, uh, about 45 or about 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem to a place called Gerar. And there they were able to plunder Gerar and, and some of those surrounding cities. Now, in Second Chronicles 15, we get a chapter called the reforms of Asa. So this was Asa who we were already been told to see that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. So he, he needed to clean some house here. And, um, Azariah comes to Asa. He says, the Lord is with you while you are with him. So there's some of that, uh, conditional promise that we're, that we look at a lot, uh, from God, but Israel had kind of been without God, for a long time, but when they he's but when they cry out to God in their trouble, they find him. This is what Azariah is telling Asa that they've kind of just been uh, skating through, 
and things have been going bad, but every time they cry out, they find God. And so he tells them to be strong. Your work shall be rewarded. So Asa removes the idols from Judah and Benjamin. And uh, this is where we find out, like, like Eric was saying, that some of the people had come from the north and come down to Jerusalem because they saw that God was with them. Specifically, it points out some from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. And they came down, they gathered with Judah and Benjamin, they make a special sacrifice, and they enter into a covenant with each other to seek God. And I, I have a little bit of trouble with this part because it sounds like anybody who wouldn't seek God then was to be put to death. Yeah, that struck me too. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know how I felt about that. I didn't feel great about it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I think that we've got... The times that they were in were just kind of an all or nothing. They were very much more rewarded as a as a group and punished as a group. And and I think I guess this is just where I have to say, well, just because it was recorded that way and just because they did that, I don't take that as a recommendation of behavior today. Second Chronicles 16, it gives us a little more detail or insight, I should say, into the treaty that Asa made with Syria. Oh, before we go there, oh, you got there's something. one okay. line I very much want to okay. mention. This is, this is just a really neat one. And this is King Asa. And this is when Asa meets uh, the seer, I think it's Azariah, the son of Oded. And Azariah says this in 15... One and two, he says, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. It's a promise. It's a conditional one because it starts with that if, and we've talked about conditional promises a lot. But um, it's it's a promise that I think is is a universal thing, that if we really seek, that you know, we'll find him. Jeremiah has a very, very, very similar quote. But anyways, I think that's applicable for us, too. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Yeah, that definitely seems like one of those promises that is universal. Right. And I think just it over and over, you know, even from the Exodus, it's, hey, you're with me. Things will be good. And if you're not, then things can go south quickly. And I think they still continue to get these promises all the time. But never take it, take the Lord up fully. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes they do, Asa does this with the, uh, with the uh, Ethiopians, who part of me wonders, it's like, had they heard stories of their great-great-grandmother saying how much wealth there was in Israel? And they're like, you know, I think we're going to go up there. Uh, you know, the, the Queen of Sheba, they, she talked a lot about all this good stuff. Let's go get some. Who knows what their motivator was, but they did it, and they went up north, and when Asa turned to God, you know, there was a very specific outcome. And then, Matt, I think you were going into kind of Asa's, kind of the, well, you could have done it better with the Syrians that was Mm -hmm. brought up later. Right, yeah, so in 2 Chronicles 16, we're given some insight that we didn't get before very much, that a prophet named, is a Hanani, Hanani? Something like that. We'll say Hanani. He comes to Asa, and essentially the message is that God is kind of angry with Asa because he went to Syria instead of calling out to God. 
And, you know, it was funny because as I was reading it, I don't know, maybe it's just my human nature. I hadn't even thought of that when he when he went for the with the treaty with Syria. I guess that speaks to maybe speaks a little bit to my mindset. But, you know, first of all, I was like, well, that's an interesting place to go and and buy off Syria. But how many times have we have we read it here that that if if the Israelites would have just turned to God, things would have turned out better. And that's exactly what's being pointed out here is that Asa should have turned to God instead of making a treaty with Syria because a lot of times those treaties somewhere down the road end up coming back to bite them. Yep. You know what? I have a big question mark in mind, too. Mm-hmm. Have we ever seen a treaty that was supposed to happen? No. Well, no. I mean, they weren't supposed to do that. No. And that's what I was thinking throughout the thing. It's like, okay, God said just rely on him. And, and any treaty that I could ever remember did not go well. Right. Right. Yeah. I think they all ended up coming back somewhere and, and biting them. And I don't know, I guess we'll, we'll see. I, I don't know the history quite well enough to know if this comes back. I, I bet it does, though. I bet somehow well, or other. I can't remember any that go well off the top of my head. No. Yeah. The bigger point is, is that God doesn't even he doesn't want them to go there, period. Mm-hmm. Whether they work or don't work, he just says, I want you to rely on me. And so in this case, I mean, in the short term, it worked out. But the problem is, is that that left Asa and his people with the with the with the understanding or with the the, uh, the frame of mind that treaties is what saves you, not what relationship to God saves mm-hmm. you. Yeah, we we these days we put a lot of effort and time into our foreign relations, and um, you know, trying to make sure that we. We have the right people on our side, and we don't have the wrong people on our side, and that we keep the right people on our side. And uh, here, it's just God. God is just like you should have. You should have just come to me to begin with. Yep. Well, well, I think that was probably the point of his whole God's whole standard on that to start with. It's like don't you know, don't go into that land and make treaties with the people. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll lead you. I'll take care of it. Yep. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, look at look at how quickly after David things started going bad, and it's because everybody started picking up the bad habits of the people in the area that were supposed to have gotten uh, pushed out, and they yep. never did quite get them all out of there. And now, um, clearly, they're starting to intermarry, and they're the the those old religious ways are coming back. All the all of the all of the idolatry and probably some of the some of the practices that we've talked about some of those child sacrifice practices and I mean they're not spelled out specifically but you know that if there's um, um, there's a molex specifically sometimes you get talked about or we we hear about people in the area worshiping molek and I mean that was a wow I mean that was a that was a bad dude you know you know and I think too that we look at treaties as far as like the one here with with Syria, but we kind of overlook the marital kind of treaties, especially too with Solomon. I was just he, thinking he, that he mm-hmm. opened up a thousand, you know, different marital treaties with people from all over, and that's was kind of the beginning of the end, as far as because he embraced those, and then he had others follow him. So I think I think that's where we see the beginning of the end yeah yeah i think so yeah well that's definitely where we started seeing things go starting to go bad during solomon which is so disappointing from after everything that he did that was so great and then so it starts to slide 
Yeah. Look at Hananiah's, uh, what he says to Asa, because it's, I think it's a really cool thing. And again, there's some universal things here, some specific things. Second Chronicles 16, uh, 7, at that time, Hananiah's seer came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. So in other words, he was saying, not only could you have beaten, you know, the the northern kingdom, but you you could have prevailed over Syria. Mm-hmm. And he gives him a reminder, we're not the Ethiopians and the Libyans, a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. And here's a cool uh, promise, I think, for all of us. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Yeah, it should have seemed it should have seemed like the simplest thing to just turn to God. Especially, I mean, Asa really was he had been looking in the right direction, it seems. It it doesn't sound like it was just lip service from him. Right. And I don't know. I don't know why he suddenly got got worried about about Israel and that you know Rama getting built, but he did. And and he slipped and he went the wrong way. It's really, I mean, I guess it's really not too much different from from Moses getting angry and striking the rock and and forgetting his for forgetting his focus for a, for a while. I, you know, it can happen to any of anybody. Uh, well, but when okay, you're in the so, hmm? sorry, go ahead. I was just saying when when you're in a position of leadership like that, I think probably you get. You get a little extra responsibility put on you when you slip like that. He he should have been he should have been in a better position. His actions, uh, people are watching his actions for an example, and when he slips, it, uh, it it reflects badly on not only his his actions, but it you know it's it's bad for the whole nation. What were you gonna say? Well, I was I was thinking I can think of a of a number of examples throughout the Bible, and of course, then then there's always the course of human history about times where, you know, God would say, you know, do do this or do it this way, or specifically, don't do that, don't interact with those people in this way, and and people who who are, I mean, famous enough in the Bible to be listed in the faith chapter still had their moments where they were like, mm, wow, this is tough. I think I'm, I think I'm just going to do this instead. And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of uh, specifically times like, like Abraham, you know, he was a friend of God. He's listed in the faith chapter. And yet what did, what did he do? He lied about who his wife was to protect her and himself, mostly himself from mm-hmm. the local people. Um, he he tried to create the child of promise through means other than what God had said it was going to happen. You know, I think that's a really, really human tendency. It's like, well, this thing is supposed to happen. So here's a chance to make it happen. I'm going to do it. And then there's and, and, and what I'm getting at is it's falling back on reliance of your of your own things. Like there is a way that seems right to a man. But the end of that is destruction. And. And that goes for these alliances that they were told not to make. It goes to these interactions with these particular nations that they were told not to have. It goes with marrying into those nations, which they were told to stay away from. It goes, you know what I mean? It just kind of goes on and on. 
And that's mm-hmm. such a human tendency to trust the seen over the unseen. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess we've probably all had these instances in our own lives where you have something right in front of you and it seems like it seems like the right thing because it seems just so obvious. It seems like, you know, this couldn't be easier. Why wouldn't I why wouldn't I do that? Yet um, we're supposed to stop, think and ask God's guidance. And a lot of times we don't do it. And uh, a lot of times when we don't do that, it doesn't work out well for us because we've taken the easy, the easy route and haven't maybe haven't looked through, looked, looked past it to see what that connotes for other, is that a word connotes (laughs) what the connotations are for, (laughs) um, I'm making up my own English here, folks. Um, but what it means for the future, you know, we, 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 we kind of put up put up blinders we don't we don't see past the immediate uh and uh so it, well, it's that's definitely not blinders we can't right I mean, that's no blinders. no you're right you're right but yeah it's like uh we're not looking over the fence or something i don't know but they, it's um we're not we're just not looking to see what's beyond the immediate and um and seeing what the next few moves would actually would actually do for us well Asa actually gets upset with Hanani's message and and puts him in prison. That sort of seemed like an odd an odd thing to do for somebody who had been doing right in the eyes of the Lord or however it put that to uh, when he got reprimanded he <laughs> shoots the messenger so to speak. Yeah. But yeah, so that was kind of a that was kind of an oddity to see that this is the way he's going to end his career as king. Yeah, it's a sad thing. And it's interesting that in First Kings, basically, it says, you know, hey, and he was a great guy this whole life, the end. Yeah. And we kind of see more details filled in over in uh, Second Chronicles about what happens. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we bounce back to, if we bounce back to First Kings, which is really a very condensed version, and they both kind of fill in different details, is that this guy, Basha, um, was I don't believe a uh, he becomes king after Jeroboam, but he was so Jeroboam uh, sets up Nadab as the king, and then Basha I think is a commander in Israel's army, and then Basha leads a rebellion or or a coup against Jeroboam's family. And it says in 1 Kings uh, 15, 29, and as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. And he left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he destroyed it. This is the deal. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shulamite. Remember the uh, prophecy at the altar that split when Jeroboam was like, he was uh, having the uh, the initial worship services of this golden calf that a prophet comes out of Judah. This is the prophet who who did was not supposed to go home with anybody, but did. And we discussed that last week, that in, very interesting story. Well, that was the prophecy where he says, there's going to be none left to you. And this is where that comes true. Basha comes through and just wipes out the family of Jeroboam. Now, I mistakenly last week had somehow thought that 
um, Jezebel was part of his family, and that was the end of his family. She's not. She's a different family. And there's a different prophecy against her that's equally as grim. Mm -hmm. But uh, here we see the prophecy that was made. The first part of the prophecy is that Jeroboam's family is wiped out. We don't see the, the part where the uh, bones are offered on the, on the altar. We'll see that later. But it's interesting, that was a three-part prophecy. One, the altar is going to split, Jeroboam, your family is going to get wiped out. Three, there's going to be bones of these false prophets offered up on this altar. We haven't seen that yet, but we will. Before we move away from, from Asa, I wanted to, Tracy, I wanted your insight on something here. Mm-hmm. In Second Chronicles 16, verse 12, it talks about how he got, said he got diseased in his feet. I don't know exactly what that means. I know that I know that uh, what so diabetes can give you issues with your feet. See, that's what I was thinking. Things. That's I was yeah. thinking neuropathy. Yeah, yeah, be super, super painful, and people can almost stop walking from it. Yeah. Now, here's the part that I really wanted your insight on, though, Tracy. See what you said because it says he did not seek the Lord, but he did seek the physicians. As as a medical professional, Tracy, what's what's your thought on that? Somebody you know, uh, I, going I, to I, going to God in prayer instead of going to see your doctor. Well, you know, I think though you look at the time and how the physicians were used, and especially too, you you guys know I like Egypt and stuff, but a lot of times that was was magic mm. and and false uh, gods and stuff like that. So. You know, I wonder if that had something to do with it, especially, too, with all the nations being involved there. I think that could have been it. Okay. I was just curious how, because uh, uh, you know, we, I, we have seen people in our modern society. We don't see it a whole lot, but I have seen some people, they just want to reject modern medicine, rely entirely on prayer and things like anointing, you know things of that nature for healing from physical ailments, and I, I mean, obviously, we're doing a Bible podcast, so I, I none of us are going to be against prayer and and those uh, those types of um, those types of things to to seek help from God. But I I would suspect that all four of us would find it rather uh, short sighted and and uh, foolish to also ignore medicine yeah that's for me too matt that really that really stood out and i yeah i don't have a definitive answer certainly not for someone else mm-hmm. but for me it kind of is where where's my ultimate hope you mm-hmm. know where, where will i i mean i believe that i believe that god has gifted us and when I say us, I mean just society with insight into how to fight disease. And who wants to, I ask this, I ask this question of myself or just in general, philosophically, who wants to see people suffer and die? Right. Right? <laughs> right. That is the devil. We, see, we saw that probably the most clearly in the book of Job. Right. Mm. Just we see that the devil wants to hurt people. He wants to get people sick. I mean, so we saw literally the devil using uh, foreign powers to, to inflict 
pain and suffering. We saw the devil use um, nature. He, he created a windstorm that creates that created uh, devastation for Job's family. When he was given permission, he was allowed to afflict uh, Job himself with physical ailments. And God did not step in and just remove all those things. And it says Job was like the most righteous man in the world at that time. And so this calls into question and should, I hope, shut down this theology of like, well, if you just loved God, if you just prayed, everything would be good. Well, it wasn't for Job. Mm -hmm. And if Job was the most righteous man, then, oh, so you're telling me that you're more righteous than Job? You've got that going. We've had people tell us that. My wife suffered with cancer and we've had people tell us, well, if you just had faith, you mm -hmm. know, it would right. just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be sick. I'm like, Wow. Okay, so what you're saying is is that we don't is that the, the Job had less faith than you do. You've got the you've got Paul praying for the the uh, the thorn that afflicted him to be taken away, and God says, "No, not going to take it away." Um, you know, my grace is sufficient. And what he didn't say, "My grace is sufficient to take away your pain." He said, "My grace is sufficient." Period. And there's a big difference, and I think we've got to be really careful with this as we take it apart to think that, well, if you just had faith and you just prayed and you did the anointing, everything would be just fine. I think half of that's true. We should have faith and we should pray, but the idea that it will be just fine, that does not follow. And where we ultimately put our hope, where we ultimately put our trust, I think it has to be the same prayer Jesus had in Gethsemane. You know, your will be done. You know, and I look at that, too, and I don't know, my Bible has the cross kind of reference also to Jeremiah 17 about cursed is a man who, who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength and whose heart departs from God. That's, and I think that's, the, that's the, the kicker there that Eric is talking about, that, that belief and that trust. Where does it lie when these things come? That's right. Ultimately. And I think that's, you know, even as a medical provider, that's how I look at it, you know, and I, and I think just like Eric was saying too, it's, you know, was somebody blessed with that insight in that gift to, to be able to sit there and, and um, diagnose and treat people and provide this, this kind of medical service. But ultimately you don't want somebody for, to forsake their faith and and put it all on you. Yes. That is a heavy burden to bear for somebody to say, save me. Okay, mm -hmm. right there you're just touching on it because yep. there's a difference between, hey, I have, I have some trust and I see value in this, and I have ultimate trust. And I, this is what I've told people. Like, I respect science, but I don't worship it. Mm -hmm. There are some today who basically worship science. It's whatever science tells me, whatever the Bill Nye says, then I'm, that's the truth right there. It's like, it's, I, I think that it goes to where Tracy's going and he's amplifying what I'm trying to articulate poorly, is that it has to do with where our faith ultimately is. And can we use the tools that we have? And this idea that like, well, we wouldn't use modern medicine. It's like, okay, well then you better get up, give up the phone and the internet 
and light bulbs and all these other things that are conveniences that make our lives easier, and medicine is one of those, then then we need to give it all up and say, well, okay, I'll just live in a mud hut, you know, and, and go out and gather sticks and, and cook whatever I can, you know, find. But I don't think that's what God's asking us to do. But I do think from start to finish, regardless of how amazing technology gets or how good medicine gets, is if we worship that, if that, if our faith is like, well, I don't really need God because I've got a pill, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and too, and looking back at Asa, he's had that experience where he's trusted in God and it's it's been good. It's been beneficial. And then too, we get to the point now where he could be saying, you know what, Lord, heal me, you know, make this better, you know, uh, you know, help this, this, I, I call it neuropathy. I'm not sure if that's what it was, but, you know, and we could have had another addition to a story about how, you know, God and his faith helped him, but we don't. We just see that, you know what, he chose physicians at that time over just simply, you know, maybe praying about it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's put it's put forward as if it's kind of an either or in this case. Right. And he chose, he didn't choose God. And I don't know, I don't think it's always an either or. I think we should be careful about that. But right. in this particular situation, that's how it's put down. And we get a little bit of a clue as to the condition of his heart. Because as soon as he's rebuked, instead of saying, oh, you know what? You're right, man. How did I, how could I forget that? He doesn't do that. He doesn't repent. He takes the messenger and says, well, fine. I'm just going to throw you in jail. As if that stops God's judgment yeah. or God. But that's where Asa's mind is. And so I think we need to look at all the clues. And that's a pretty strong clue as to where Asa's mind was at the time. And then I was had this in my thing too, but didn't we see this before when when you kind of shoot the messenger that it never goes well for you because didn't Saul do the same thing, you know, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm going here. And this, that brings me to the point that where I was talking about the little bit of, Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there with the burning of bodies. Cause I always, before I've always seen it where they were buried with their fathers, they were buried in their father's tombs, you know, that kind of thing. But if we go to 1614, and they buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in a bed which was filled with spices and various ingredients prepared in a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning for him. Now, I look at that and I'm thinking of other things. I go back to Egypt. They were huge on on spices, ingredients, um, drying uh tools and in uh minerals herbs that kind of thing this is the first time i've i remember this does anybody else remember it anywhere before yeah i don't know i guess when i was reading that i was taking that more as i didn't take the burning as though they burned him but that they did a burning of some sort like in his honor almost like sacrifices in his honor but not necessarily burning him because it says specifically they buried him I don't know, but but yeah, burying him with all have that ever, stuff. Have though. you ever seen any burnings like this or mentioned this before? I, I couldn't I remember. 
Not, not in the Bible. I mean, I know historically that other societies did that long before this, but I, I don't remember that from the Bible speaking, right. of, you know, God's people. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I'm wondering if it was just another one of those elements, of, you know, some other culture getting in here again. Could be. And especially at the end, you know, where we see people that that waver, you know, being with God and then going against what God's saying in the course of their lifetime. Did it say where they buried Solomon? I mean, this is like a tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. Okay, well, I would think that that's where the kings would want to be buried. But, but like, we have, yeah, we have some kings that are buried with their fathers in in like the city of David, and we have others that don't make it there. Yeah, I'm certain Solomon was buried in Jerusalem. I mean, I, I, I'm. I'm certain without having looking right at a note right now, but I'm pretty sure he yeah. was buried in Jerusalem. But yeah, I do remember there was one specific king who absolutely was not buried with his fathers. And some of them, even what we were reading now, where they were, it was indicated that they, I mean, some of it says, you know, they're going to, they'll, they'll be eaten by dogs and birds and stuff. They won't, they won't get buried at all. So, um, I don't the think, biblical equivalent yeah. of a wrinkled flag on the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I think Saul made it because Saul got parted out. Yeah. Anyway, but, that's definitely that's definitely odd. Yeah, it's definitely it's different from what we've seen. That's for sure. We, we because usually even with the kings, and Saul and Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David after his father. Okay. Hmm. So David was there, Solomon was there. First King eleven forty three. Yeah, we're we're generally not given a lot of pomp and circumstances surrounding the deaths of these kings. I mean, we're told they're buried yeah. with their fathers, but we're thinking, not. I was thinking that that David was buried there because Peter references him in the New Testament, like he's they're in Jerusalem and Peter's preaching and he points at the grave and he says, "See." You know, David, our, you know, our forefather was buried and his body is with us to this day, blah, blah, blah. So, but yeah, there was never much, uh, there wasn't much pomp and circumstance. We certainly didn't have, um, like, doesn't I, sound like we had anything of them, you know, laying in state in the Capitol building for uh, a week or whatever. You know, it, it was just, it was kind of like, like, well, time to move on. Or at least that's the perception that I got. It's like, we're sorry they're gone, but next all right, well, okay, so 1 Kings 15, it goes on. We talk about, um, briefly about Nadab, and Eric already touched on this, or how he was, he had a coup against him by, uh, as Eric called him, Basha, or Bayasha, as I was calling him. I need to pull out an old King James Bible that I was given when I was young, and it was a self-announcing Bible, and we learned how to pronounce some of these names. But, um, but yeah, he conspired and killed nadab and killed the entire house of jeroboam and not to interrupt but i, I went mm-hmm. back and i looked and it's first kings 2 10 and it says david was buried um with his fathers in the city of david mm-hmm. so that's where he was he was buried yeah i think generally i think generally those those kings were buried in in jerusalem at least until the split and then after that it sounds like the the northern kingdom kings they Kind of just had it rough, and they, uh, I don't know, some of them, if they got buried at all, they they, uh, they they certainly didn't make it to Jerusalem. But then they're not line of David, so. But that's kind of where we are left off with the reading for the week. 
just a, a very quick succession of kings in a nation that was at one point considered just to be like the greatest nation in the world. And now it's just falling apart and it doesn't seem like anybody's able to remain king for very long. It certainly doesn't seem that that there's much uh, really great, much good happening in Israel at the time. It's just important that we look at the general trend of where people are turning. You know, are they worshiping God? Are they doing the things that God asked them to do? Or are they kind of following their own way? Because the, to keep track of who's who and how they go, I've seen charts and so on of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And it's, it's just like looks like a roller coaster, the good to bad kind of slides that they do. And I guess we look through this, there's the historical component of it, and then there's the what what can I do from it uh, perspective and take lessons where we can from there. All right, well, then that's what we will leave off for this week. Next week, we will look at, I believe, Second Chronicles chapter 17, and we're going to look at First Kings chapters 17 through 19, and that's where we're going to get into some of, a couple of my favorite stories of the Bible where we talk about Elijah and some of his proclamations and the ways that he specifically called out nations for their bad behaviors. And yeah, there's a couple of really cool stories there and some stuff for us to glean out of that. While you're waiting for that, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Be sure to share the podcast with your friends, neighbors, and relatives. Look for us on Facebook and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.